Today's Your Stories is brought to you by Iron Galaxy. Scream like a school kid with Capsule Force, an intergalactic retro anime multiplayer game now available on PS4 and Steam. Go to CapsuleForce.com for more info. Thanks, Iron Galaxy. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi, everybody. My name is Eric Arnaud, and this is our year-end Best of Your Stories 2015 podcast. We made it! All the stories and songs you're about to hear were nominated by you, our listeners, to appear on this episode, and it is a great crop of pieces. Thanks to everyone who contributed to these year-end nominations. Uh, before each story, you're going to hear a brief introduction supplied by one of the people who nominated that particular story, so you'll get some sense of the impact each piece had on our listeners. Uh, before we get to the stories, as usual, we're going to kick things off with a song. This was recorded at the Adler Planetarium as part of the Adler After Dark series, which was a really awesome thing to be asked to participate in. A lot of people really like this one, and I'm glad. I really like the arrangement here, which benefits a ton from Jim Snedeker's guitar playing. Jim, if you don't know, started playing with myself, Claire, and Dwight pretty frequently this year, and he is great. Uh, you're going to hear him on all three songs in this episode, in fact. The way this song plays out uh, taught me a lot about the value of space and arrangement. You don't always have to be doing something to sound cool. So here's me, Jim, Dwight, and Claire with the cover of CeeLo Green's Bright Lights, Bigger City. familiar feeling the Friday's famous for. Yeah, I'm looking for some action and it's out there somewhere. You can feel the electricity all in the evening air and it may just be more of the same. But sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name. So I guess I'll have to wait and see. I'm just gonna let something brand new happen to me. And it's all right. 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 Bright lights and the big city—it belongs to us tonight. Tonight. Now, Friday. 
But there's something about Saturday night You can't say what you won't do Cause you know that you just might I'm alive this evening It was love at first sight This Saturday and every Saturday For the rest of my life And everyone's standing in line Yeah, looking good Looking for a real good time So I'll never have to wonder if I'll have someone to share all of this with And it's alright It's alright It's alright It's alright It's alright Bright lights and the big city It belongs to us tonight first story this episode is like our first story on last week's producers picks podcast it comes from our show in la this is ever maynard an incredibly great stand-up who was kind enough to take time out of her schedule to do our show uh here's what claire friedman had to say about ever's piece i love this story not only did it make me laugh to the point of tears but i've tried to retell to other people a thousand times and can never do it justice there's no replacement for the original so here it is claire had me read it just like that anyway ever maynard I hate going to the doctors. Uh, I guess that's my that's my grind. That's my going to work because it is a chore for me. Um, I I always have really, really, really weird experiences um, whenever I go to any type of doctor. Um, the first I want to talk about the first time I ever got my Pap smear. Ladies, let me hear it. Regulate, okay, guys. You know, it's real. We're really unrepresented. Uh, I don't think you guys hear, hear it enough. Um, but I, I was 24, which is, like, super late to get a pap smear. Um, like, yeah, it's, like, all up in this house. You know what I mean? Like, rampant. Um, and um, I, I just gotten health insurance, and I lived in Chicago. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go to the, the closest one because I don't, I don't, you know what I mean? It's just, like, take off your clothes, and then what? Like, I had never been, and I was like, they're going to jam it up there, and they're going to be like, this is all wrong, and then I'm going to cry, and then, like, you know, your brain, one thing leads to another, and you're like, eight, and then, um, I'd never been. I didn't know. Um, so I Googled, and the closest um, doctor to me was called Galilee Medical and Dental Center. Um, <laughs> Which should have been, like, the first and only red flag. Like, I should have been like, oh, definitely not that one. But in my mind, I was like, cool, <laughs> okay, a mile away. 
So I hopped on my bike <laughs> and I rode there and um, it's in a, it, the waiting room was like about this size and there were two desks, um, maybe from this window to the condiment bar. So not very far. Uh, one was for the medical center and the other was for the dental center. But the fun thing about Galilee Medical and Dental Center is that they did not have signs over their desks. Um, there's also only one receptionist and she was at the dental desk. But I walked over there. I was like, hi, I have an appointment. And she spoke broken English. She was Serbian. So she was like, what is your name? And I was like, oh, Maynard. And then she's like, no, 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 you must be for the medical side. And we have this weird exchange about like, okay, I guess I'll go to the other desk. And then I walk to the other desk, and she's like, how can I help you? And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? We just spoke. We just spoke. Just spoke. And then she was like, have a seat. And then I did. Because uh, what are you going to, like, not sit down? Uh, okay. So I already, like, I already feel anxious, like, talking about this. Um, but I sat down for, like, an hour. And just like waited and chilled out, you know, a lot of like, a lot of families getting teeth braces off, you know, um, talking to kids. And then finally my doctor comes in and she was like, come with me. And I'm like, okay. Um, and we go outside of the building and into a separate door for women only. And I was like, spotty. Um, All right, ladies only, no shoes. And um, <laughs> well, I, things start getting like really just scary as I'm walking down this hallway because all of the other patients' doors are open and they're in stirrups. <laughs> um, they're just chilling out, and I'm like, I guess, I guess, I guess this is hello. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> me too. Uh, I guess this is what I'm gonna do. And then I get there, and um, my doctor is like, okay, take your clothes off. And I'm, like, starting. And she's like, not right now. And I was like, too late. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just aggressively undressing in front of her. And um, mid, mid-de-pantsing, my doctor walks in, and she took a look at me, and then she looked in her chart, and she asked me, have you had the real sex? <laughs> have had the real sex for me you know what I mean and I was like I'm sorry what like have I had the real sex and then she I was like kind of shocked and I was like yeah like I was like questioning my own sex life and I was like yes (laughs) have I and then she goes you're wasting my time and like like slammed the folder shut and left and I was like and then I was like, excuse me. And then my nurse, who was also the Serbian receptionist, <laughs> jumping for joy about this. She's like, that's great. That's great. And I was like, what? Like, get in there. I have a family history. Like, what do you mean that's great? Like, look around. She's like, ever. You still have your Jaime. A man will want to break the Jaime from you. And I was like, what? <laughs> You clearly don't understand that no man will ever be breaking this high, mate. Um, and I was like, no, I, I have, like, my mother has, like, problems. My grandmother, it's like a family history thing. And she's like, ever, stop right there. Until a man breaks your high, mate, you cannot get cancer. <laughs> and I was like, you're wrong. I knew she was wrong. I was like, that's not right. And then... <laughs> 
on. Um, she's like, she, and then she gave me a lecture of what a pap smear is. And she told me, in order for a pap smear, we go inside, we take a bite <laughs> out of your service, <laughs> and if you have your hymen, we'll break your hymen. And then what? And I was like, first of all, I broke my hymen on the bike ride over here over a pothole. Like, <laughs> Let's say I still have my Jaime, which is pronounced Hymen. And, um, what about, like, STDs or, like, oral sex? And then she got, she, have you ever been mocked <laughs> by an idiot? Um, she looked at me and she goes, everybody know, nothing transmittable through oral. And I was like, everything is transmittable through oral. <laughs> and then she goes, what you want me to do? A blood test? <laughs> Nothing detectable by blood. And I was like, <laughs> And then she left the room. And was left me there and I was like is, and then because the doors were all open I just shouted down the hallway I was like are we done and she was like come back tomorrow and get your guardy shot and I was like what's a guardy shot and then she's like she like kind of like scampered back in the room and she's like a guardy shot is Gardasil it helps you it helps you not to get HPV and I was like so you admit I could have but then you won't do it! <laughs> like, you won't. And then, uh, I did go back. Uh, I did go back to the So, uh, but I got my teeth whitened at the same time. Thank you so much. Our next piece comes from Henry Birdseye, and due to the magic of last-minute scheduling, it actually has an introduction from two people, fellow musician Dwight Hassler and show co-producer mastermind Kevin Reeder. Kevin's responsible for a lot of the fine people you hear on this show weekly, including Henry. Here's what Kevin had to say. Henry is the sweetest and most honest person I know. He is so giving and empathetic. I think his story really reflects what it's like to be a good guy that's trying to be a successful dater in our day and age. I'm lucky enough to sit next to him a bunch at work, and he's such a great storyteller, not to mention naturally funny. It was awesome to convince him to get up and share a story with us all. I think he was nervous to do so, but I'm so glad he did. And now Dwight! Henry quickly became one of my favorite guests this year, and really, one of my favorite speakers overall. He's an incredibly fantastic storyteller. All you want to do is hear more from this guy. What I loved about his facial soap story is the way he masked the story so well. Obviously, it's a funny story, but at the core of it is a man who is lost. Not only lost in the hygiene aisle, but lost in not knowing how to be single after a nine-year relationship. All he wants to do is something nice for whoever is with him. It's so endearing, and you get a vastly detailed picture of who he is from such a short story. That is huge and well-deserved praise for Mr. Henry Birdseye. Uh, so May of last year, I got out of a nine-year relationship, um, which meant that in May of last year, uh, I uh, lived alone for the first time. I started uh, dating as an adult for the first time, and uh, I guess I was pretty good at being in a relationship. I was good at cooking for two. If one of us, well, if she got sick, I'd take care of her. That was pretty cool. I enjoyed that part. And then when I lived alone, I was like, oh, what do I do now? I gotta cook way too much food and then put some of it away. And then that just seems really stupid. 
And then uh, if I'm sick, I there's no one cares. It's just me. Uh, this is a true story. I bought a humidifier and put googly eyes on it to to create the illusion of someone giving a shit. Um, so uh, I like the idea of people being there and taking care of each other. So um, as I started thinking about dating and getting into dating, I uh, I was like, you know, if I ever like get a lady to like come back to my place and spend the night um i should like have like a like before she goes to bed she's gonna want to like wash her face right like women wash their face before bed that's like a thing i've seen uh in like nature documentaries or whatever so i had told myself like i should probably go to the store and i should get like women's face soap obviously this is a thing every single man has in his home right that's not weird um so i i went to a target i was like i'm gonna get some women's face soap as single men do and uh i looked in the soap section it wasn't in the soap section i don't know if you know this fellas but if you go like there's like the normal soap there's like the dove and then like the heavily gendered like male soap that makes you smell like a basketball or something uh, and it's not over there that's not where they put that soap at all i found myself eventually in like the makeup section which is a very different world that's where uh, there's like mirrors and they're all magnified so your pores look like craters and they got these harsh lights that make everyone look like garbage and I was like oh this is where the face soap is for women great and I, I look I, I'm there and I'm clearly like I'm like very lost and the clerk sees me and she's like hey fella what are you what are you looking to uh, what are you looking to get there I was like um face soap for a lady so she can wash her face and then she said what kind of skin does she have and i could have said like cards on the table it's not really for like a specific lady i don't know why i'm here i think i just want to feel like a good nurturing person and i miss that um what I actually said to her was medium. She, she, she's got medium, like not like too dry, not too oily, but like right in the middle, like real 50th percentile kind of skin. Uh, she's like, all right, idiot. And she just pointed towards something and I spent too much money. Um, side note, uh, as a single dude, um, for Christmas this last year, my dad got me a bag of toothbrushes. Uh, let me explain. The reason for this is twofold. One, he's cleaning house, and I appreciate that. Um, and he, he has his own electric toothbrush, but he still goes to the dentist, and he gets all these toothbrushes. He doesn't throw them out. So he just had a bag of toothbrushes. And he's like, hey, son, you're a single man about town. If you have a guest, you should let them brush their teeth. Here's a bag of toothbrushes. Merry Christmas. So this is just a weird time for having new things in my home, whether it be toothbrushes or soap. So that's kind of what I'm experiencing at the moment. So I buy the face soap and I bring it home and I realize I'm a crazy person. That's a horror. I can't be like, well, hello, thank you. I Well, things seem to be going well. It looks like you're going to be spending the evening with me. I, um... Let me get out the soap I bought for you before I met you, and you can wash your face. I'm assuming you're going to do that. Um, and so I just got home, and like, 
immediately. I can't be like, yeah, well, this is the soap I keep for all the women that I have here. Welcome to my sexual bed and breakfast. Um, so I just went home and like threw it under the sink and it's still there. It's been there for over a year. Uh, I've just banished it there out of shame. Uh, so I guess the lesson here is to uh, follow your heart, even if it's really stupid, and uh, you might learn something about yourself. All right, thank you. Our next piece comes from another new friend of the show in 2015, Miss Tracy Hall, who, like last week's Mike Josie, came to us through Tanner Woodford, a wonderful human being you'll be seeing more from next year. Uh, back in June, Tracy told a fantastic story about Kwanzaa that had a lot of great cultural depth. A lot of us probably didn't uh, didn't know and it taught us a lot. But in the end, I really loved what our dear friend and fan Ben Rather had to say about this story. Ben says, Hilarious! It was like a dump truck of funny backing up, beeping sound and all, and I just couldn't get out of the way. That is a very vivid image from our dear friend Ben. And here is Tracy Hall. An activist academic during a post-civil rights um, black power movement um, named Malena Karanga came up with the notion of an African-American holiday called Kwanzaa, meaning first fruits of the labor in 1966 as a way of creating a holiday rooted in the African tradition. Celebrated just after Christmas from December 26th through January 1st, by the time I became a young adult, this African-American holiday, Kwanzaa, had not only taken hold of African-American imagination, it had also taken hold of my African-American imaginary as a um, teen. It's based on seven principles. The first one, Umoja, which means unity. The second one, Kuji Chagulia, which means self-determination. I would later study Swahili, and the G is reflexive. So you can say, I cut myself. Niji kata. You know, it's like really important. You put that G in there, you did it to yourself. And I think that's hot. <laughs> what other languages do? What other languages do? Also, to say et cetera in Swahili is nakadalika, nakadalika, nakadalika. So, you know, it's a hot language anyway. Um, ujima, which means collective work and responsibility. Ujama, which means um, to build or cooperative economics. Nia, which means purpose. And then kuumba, which means creative, creativity. And then finally, imani, which is faith. All right, so now... Um, I was really into Kwanzaa. I got into Kwanzaa because it seemed like all the hip and cool people around me were in Kwanzaa. They were like into it. As soon as like Christmas would come, they'd be like, oh good, that's over. Now we can celebrate Kwanzaa. So we were always doing stuff. Like we were having like Kwanzaa celebrations in the post office. Did you know that some of the postal workers would actually have the keys to the post office and go in and just make this whole Kwanzaa festival while the post office was closed for the holidays? I would be like, you know what? I don't think that's right. But it's cool. It's really, really cool. So I'm going to tell you what happened for me with Kwanzaa. So by the time I got to college, all I could think about was um, all the things I was interested in. But I was very interested and fascinated with the idea of Africa. Anywhere in Africa. Africa has over 50 countries. I was like, anywhere, anywhere. So I signed up for my junior year abroad. How many people did junior year abroad? Right. And for how many people did that define you? It defined me. So I, you know, so I had this opportunity to go to Kenya and I'm going to study at the University of Nairobi. But most importantly, it doesn't matter that I'm going to study in this great school where some of the great writers are or have sent their kids. Wally Shoyinka, Chinyo Achebe's um, son, David, was there. Um, and Gugi Wathiongo's son, who is Wathu, um, wh whose um, name is like the opposite of his. It's like the Yongo Wangugi, which is very, very interesting. I was like, this is 
wonderful. I'm studying with and front and um, with African uh, intellectuals. But the most important thing is I'm in the, in the land of Kwanzaa. So I have this roommate, Anyango, and Anyango has all of the. Co- she's um, now like a sales rep or something in Toronto. I saw her just the other, you know, not too long ago. So anyway, but at the time they're the cool kids. You know, they read, they're into art and all this other stuff. And she has this really best friend named Sionzi. Sionzi lives in this small village. A village is Kijiji in um, Swahili. So. Sionzi, right around, you know, Christmas time, we're on break, and she says, Teresa, because no one could get my name, Tracy. She says, Teresa, do you want to come home with me for harvest? What? A Kwanzaa? Somebody's inviting me home for an authentic Kwanzaa? Oh, yes. I want I don't even ask questions. She tells me what time she and her uncle are going to come pick me up, and I just pack my suitcase. And I'm, you know, I'm from L.A. originally, and I like to bling. I like to bling real, real hard. Like, this is like, you know, I'm just in drag, like work drag. But I really like to bling. I like to bling real, real hard, like Lil Wayne. You know, bling, bling, every time I come around your city, bling, bling. That's me. I like to bling real hard. So I have, I'm packing all the most impractical clothes because it's going to be like seven days so a week of Kwanzaa. So I pack like this red dress is all bling. I, I pack all my, all my shoes are bling. Oh, it's just amazing. So we get in this car. Her uncle takes us and he's supposed to take us just um, to the outskirts of town where we're going to take what I think is another taxi and soon we'll be home. Oh, it's hours. Oh, it's hours up and down. I think we went to Uganda. I don't know. We just kept going. Finally, by the time we get there, you know, okay, it's cool. And there's like a group of seven people. We would walk three more miles before we go to her small village. And okay, but it's Kwanzaa. So the first night, day one, no Kwanzaa. Her grandmother, who's like this really old wizened woman, asks, um, and they don't speak Swahili. They speak Kikuyu because they're Kikuyu in a whole nother village. She says, ask her what she wants to eat. So I said, I, I don't know, you know, chicken, that's fine. And her grandmother says, tell her to catch the one she wants. <laughs> All right. By day two, Sionzi is getting me up really early in the morning. Is you know, it's harvest. So I put on my red dress, and I'm gonna tell you really quickly what happened. I think her grandmother had looked at me and sized me up and said, Oh, Sionzi, you brought home a good one this time. <laughs> I was working up a storm. They actually had a corn and bean, like maize and bean farm. We cl- we had to harvest, and I found out that really, when she meant harvest, when she said harvest, that's what she meant. We were picking for three days. Her grandmother, because I'm looking strong, her grandmother says, "Why don't you have her go up to this hill and bring home the bring down the water?" Because you know, again, there's no like. So I had to learn how to walk with one of those big jerry cans. And you know, one of the things I learned about my African sisters is the reason why they can roll those hips is because they have to. Because that's how you balance that water. My clothes were destroyed. My shoes were destroyed. But I'm going to tell you about the last day. So we're getting ready to go back to university. I think I have lost weight by this time. My no bling. I mean, really, I had these shoes with some rhinestone toes. Man, if you had seen those shoes, my goodness. But by the end of it, okay, they were very, very sad. And I left them there, actually, so that tells you what happened. But in any case, I remember the last night we had to go back um, to school. We were going to go back on that same journey. Her grandmother, who's kind of just um, keeping the, the hearth, you know, she's not out there working, but she's directing everybody. Um, we're around the fire, all the fields. You know, we have been out there, and I really learned how important agriculture is and stamina. But um, 
her grandmother starts to sing, and her grandmother has the most amazing voice. And I don't understand what she's saying, but you could tell that everybody else in the family was really getting enlivened by the grandmother singing, and it's a song, obviously, that meant something to them. And at some point... After she had been sitting there, she gets up and she started. To, she starts dancing, and she has just enough energy to do her dance. And then her son, who has also come home, he joins his mother, and he's dancing. And the look in their faces, and we were all weary and tired and working from sun up to sundown. Somehow, in that dance and in that fire and in the loss of my bling, I realized what Kwanzaa really was. That it is about a harvest, a harvest of that flow of when you give and take, when you contribute um, to something that is bigger than you, that you might not just reap the benefits from directly, but that you really have been a contribution. And I knew that my bringing the water and my helping had really contributed to this family and that um, the reason why Sionzi had asked me home for the harvest is because they needed the help. And so now... I really know what Kwanzaa is, and that was my discovery. After three New York Stories personalities, we're going back to a classic with our next choice, Mr. Andrew Bentley. Uh, everything Andrew says is golden. We all know this. Uh, I'm going to let good friend Jeremy Connie introduce this story. He says, Andrew Bentley has a command of the English language so strong that my brain yearns to be his brain. It would, if it could, ditch this life sack of a body and go be brain buddies with Andrew's shining city of intelligence. During this story, I felt like I was being firmly reminded that language can be artfully constructed to portray an idea. Any idea. Clearly, Andrew just thought the idea of inflating Sean Hannity with helium and watching him float away was a funny idea. But put me in front of that idea, and what I would produce would pale in comparison to the string of large, beautiful words put together and orated that night. It was also really funny. Here's Andrew Bentley. Hello, I'm Andrew Bentley, and my card was inflating Sean Hannity with helium and watching him float away. (laughs) Inflating Sean Hannity with helium and watching him float away. What a lovely thought. It's so satisfyingly benign. As a supposedly enlightened humanist, I have at least the rudimentary moral compass necessary to feel guilty about murder. I couldn't ever truly enjoy the thought of, say caving Sean Hannity's skull with a ball-peen hammer, or holding Sean Hannity's lying, venomous face against a belt sander, or making Sean Hannity eat so many bees that he craps honey. No, no, no. That would be inequitable. But turning him into a human balloon? That's so much more poetic. It's... It's the whimsical, rolled dollian notion, dripping with cosmic justice, yet untainted by the guilt of entirely justified violence. If you try, you can almost picture him there in the book, scribbled out by Quentin Blake on page 49, indignantly swollen with that noblest of gases, and tilting in the wind to the joyous amazement of some Dickensian scamp in his magical woodchuck. I can see his face, somehow pinched with rage, even when stretched to its limit, and the string trailing from his asshole, worn with years of tugging by every special interest in Coke subsidiary eager to make Sheriff Woody talk. There's a snake in my boot. Somebody poisoned the water hole. Climate change is a liberal myth. By ceding responsibility for his fate to the whims of the trade winds and the happenstance of local power lines, we could sleep peacefully at night 
comforted by the thought that he's still up there somewhere, floating around in the atmospheric equivalent of that farm upstate where old dogs go to romp and frolic and are only very rarely sucked up by jet intakes and shredded into thousands of wet morsels raining down like Bolognese into the reticent ocean. (laughs) It's important for us to keep that high ground, at least publicly, You see, that's the great lesson Sean had to teach us before vanishing into the sky like a bloated captive Mary Poppins. (laughs) The power of appearances. There is no ugly fact so undeniable or unconquerable that it cannot be subverted by an even uglier lie. If we shout long enough and furrow our brow and clench our anus in feigned indignation, if we pummel our straw man and shake our heads and spread our hands in demure apology for the inevitable results of our rigorous journalism, we can even convince each other that it was Sean's fault all along. Coming up next, it would say, did Sean Hannity deserve to be force-fed two feet of esophageal tubing and repurposed as a grotesque dirigible? (laughs) We don't know. But here's four experts who think the answer could be yes. (laughs) And, of course, one meek asshole who might dare to imply with all the confidence of a bow-legged fawn at its seventh-grade talent show that while both sides have a salient point, maybe there was a bit of an overreaction. And, of course, we won't stand for that. That uppity little traitor will need to be thoroughly ground down into the dirt just in case anyone gets the impression that there's even a hint of gray to the matter. Then, after the break, Woodland Talent Shows, is there anything more adorable? (laughs) And our monstrous apparatus will chug on. We learned our lessons well, Sean, from you, Sean. We learned it from watching you. (laughs) From watching you and knowing, knowing that you're no true believer, that even that final bulwark of sympathy is denied to you. Sean knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows we know he knows, and knowing that gives him such a rock-hard, pants-defying, carbon-60 hard-on that it's a wonder every beat of his black heart, every new surge of blood, doesn't bobble the head of the little plastic Reagan on his desk. (laughs) And he knows, just as we do, that that the malignant implement he services is built with redundancy of forethought, and will not miss him. It will not falter a single step of its cloven hoof. We could fill the sky with floating jeans and power ties. We could blot out the sun and bring forth a new age of sun-kissed cities buoyed upon the backs of wheezing pundits, squeaking against each other in silent pop-eyed distress. And it would do nothing to stop the hands that tug the string. You're not worth the helium, Sean, even if we want you to be. We need it to manufacture our semiconductors. Now... Bees, on the other hand. Thank you. Besides L.A., I think one of the Your Stories crew's collective favorite nights last year was the show we recorded in July-themed fans, co-curated by departing friend Mark Coulomb. Uh, He just moved to Denver. He didn't die. Uh, Before Mark left, he tweeted something to the effect that he was leaving Chicago with a polemic. I think that's a pretty apt description of what you're about to hear. Fellow Nerdalogs member Mary Beth Smith had this to say. Mark's story made me cry. He taught me, and I'd venture to say a lot of us, the value of supporting your friends and colleagues. I think about it on at least a weekly basis. Totally agreed, Mary Beth. Uh, If you want a handbook for being a good independent creative person, Mark Coulomb has you covered. We miss you and hope Denver's treating you excellently, friend. Here's Mark Coulomb. Marvel doesn't need you. DC doesn't, it seems, doesn't want you. The WWE does not care about you. Star Wars is going to happen whether you want it to or not. 
130,000 people, only cut off because of the fire marshal, stared at a Lucite case a couple weeks ago from a prop, from a movie that isn't coming out for two years. There's a reason it's called a con. Disney and Warner Brothers want your money. They want to transmutate your fandom into dollars. They're spinning gold out of your childhood. Fandom is big business now, and it'll cruise along just fine without you. Either young or old, Han Solo's whole vibe is he doesn't want your help. No fandom, your friends need you. The folks working on a board game after getting home from some shit job that they hate need you. Podcasts with ten people and one microphone need you. Comedians that make jokes that aren't quite there really need you. (laughs) (laughs) Things that could use a little money but you wouldn't think to ask need you. Poorly worded Kickstarters need you. (laughs) In the dark ages of the mid-80s, being part of fandom wasn't on demand. We were analog. You had to track things down from arcane sources. Import from someone's cousin in Taiwan. A channel high on an actual dial late at night in another language. Magazines in spinner racks. Cons were at Holiday Inns where, yes, Robert Downey Jr. might have shown up, but only because his dealer lived there. (laughs) Today... Whatever you want is right there. It's a click away. It's packaged and ready for Amazon to drone drop it on your Yorkie because you weren't home to sign. (laughs) Fandom's all too easy now. We live in a world of Avengers versus Justice League versus Kramer versus Kramer. And every month you get a $200 million spectacle tied into a Netflix original series that's part of an ongoing narrative and trade paperback form that you can get digitally on demand with a code from Mountain Dew Code Blue. (laughs) And they can be fun. And they would happen if you were there or not. But that shitty comic your friend draws on her lunch break about her shitty boss that takes off his shoes at work, that comic needs you. It takes your shares, your tweets, your likes, even just a text of, that thing you did, did today wasn't the worst. Could be enough. If everybody could kind of start humming arms of an angel, that'd be great. Yeah, just walking around, just kidding. Um, all right, I will cut the altruistic shit and play off your selfishness and vanity. Being a fan clearly pays off. I know from firsthand experience, I was an M. Mel Evans' biggest fan. I think she's one of the best comedians I've ever seen in my life. I was a fan of my wife before I ever met her. Years ago, I nervously approached her after a show and told her how funny she was. My wife used to intimidate the shit out of me, and still does if we're talking not in front of a crowd. (laughs) The woman with who I share a life and a cat with IBS with makes me starstruck. Our first date, even if she didn't know it, was when I asked her to be on a podcast I used to host. That hour-long interview is our secret origin. Then I created a sham podcast, an hour with your ex on iTunes and a member of the Chicago Podcast Co-op, just to get her know her better. I clearly had crossed over to fan to someone she should have pressed charges against. But we're married now, and she isn't allowed to testify against me, I think. Point being, the single best thing in my life happened because I was a fan of someone, and I told him so. At my lowest point, and I don't mean to brag or nothing, but James Cameron couldn't deep dive to my lowest point. It was someone just letting me know that something I did mattered to them that turned me around. All the things that I make really only exist online. I love making videos and podcasts, but it's hard to know if anyone actually gives a shit. I've rarely heard anyone laugh at any joke I've ever made, mostly because they stink, but also because clicks don't laugh. 
it's all just numbers. And my numbers aren't the sort of things you're probably going to brag about. So when someone like a Claire Friedman tells you that some dumb podcast you made matter to her, it just means everything. So many of the people that are my friends are people that I was a fan of once, and it blows my mind what everyone's capable of. Not just what you're doing now, but what I know you're all going to do. But it's so easy to get discouraged when you're just getting started and you're doing things that really no one should care about. Fans, dude, you need them. Stop writing for Spider-Man. Let Batman brood by himself. Find small people doing small things and treat them like they're big heroes. Because they are. And it might be a fan of yours, but you, and they might be a fan of yours, but you won't know it unless you let them know. Now everyone, please donate to my Kickstarter and share this on Twitter. Thanks everybody. Our last story of the year was a clear favorite. There was no way this couldn't close our show. Uh, it hails from our yearly fan fiction night and comes courtesy of Mr. Brad Einstein. In the nominations, fan and friend Maggie Wagner said that this Your Stories recording was one of her favorite nights in Chicago, period. I asked her why that was, and here's what she wrote back. All of the readers for Your Stories fan fiction braved a particularly nasty snowstorm to get down to Threadless headquarters. I think the excursion bonded all of us, like devoted nerd monks on a pilgrimage. Maybe it was the extra trudge through the snow. Maybe it was the venue filled with graffiti murals, sparkling roller coaster car seating, and irregular t-shirts. Whatever it was, each story was hilarious and amazing. Each song was an instant classic. Chicago magic happened. One of those magical stories was this runaway favorite, which fellow speaker Eileen Tall called hilarious and unexpected. Well, expect it now, guys. Here's Brad Einstein with Fred Phelps in Gay Heaven. The warm sun beat down on Fred Phelps's brow. It was a hot day, but it always was here. Fred couldn't tell. He couldn't care less. All he cared about was the celestial throbbing that started in his loins and radiated out of his heart. The landscape here shimmered and glowed. Fred couldn't tell if this was from the glorious noonday sun or that this was just how things were here in gay heaven. (laughs) In life, Fred Phelps had been called many things. A monster. A devil. Hitler minus all the talent. The third Manning brother of hate mongers. For those unfamiliar with sports, the Twilight Express of hate mongers. A living scarecrow stuffed with rancid Greek yogurt that had two used condoms for eyes. But Fred Phelps was so much more than just that. He was a person. A truly awful person to most humans with brains, but even the worst people have multiple facets. For Fred, it was the fact that in the 1960s, he was a crusader for civil rights and for a time was a true friend to the African-American population in Kansas. A fact that would make a lot of people really uncomfortable, probably because it just seems so outrageously out of character. Because how does the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church not hate black people. It's just like, I don't know, Jesus' core message of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. It just doesn't make any sense. But hey, our vengeful, loveless God works in mysterious ways. Fred had brought the world what he had thought was the greatest discovery of the 21st century, not the polio vaccination. That was a papist ruse. (laughs) 
and not the theory of relativity. That's just what happens when a Jew thinks too hard. No, he discovered that, say it with me now, God hates fags. Yes, thank you, Dwight was the only person who said it. Wow. You see, Fred made the startling discovery that every tragedy, terror, and negative event in human history can directly be tied to a man putting his peeing mechanism into another man's pooping mechanism. Absolving Fred and all other heterosexuals of any responsibility they ever might have for the poor state of the world. And he spent the rest of his life spreading that message to the people who needed it most. The grieving families of soldiers, theaters staging productions of the Laramie Project. And just yesterday, three months ago, or way more than three, math, fuck math. And just yesterday, at a Lord concert. And, of course, most of all, his own totally not-gay psyche. Throughout his whole life, Fred knew that after he died, he would finally enter that blessed faggot-free zone in the sky where he would be forever liberated from earthly gayness, spending his days skipping from cloud to cloud, wearing shimmering robes and singing in choirs with angels named Gabriel. In short... A straight man's paradise. (laughs) Fred Phelps, like all men, good and bad, just and wicked, poor and Republican, did die. And to the surprise to many of you here, he went to heaven. It just wasn't the heaven he expected. For those who missed the beginning of the piece, it was gay heaven. (laughs) Hey, big boy. It was Oscar Wilde. (laughs) Oscar, I didn't see you there, Fred said, his heart skipping a beat. And maybe you can feel me here, Oscar replied, as he slid behind him and pulled Fred's body towards his by the hips. Tell me, duckling, what are you doing tonight, Oscar asked. I was thinking of going over to the Rock Hudson Cineplex to catch the double feature of Mommy Dearest and Frozen before the Pointer Sisters concert tonight, Fred replied. I never understood the point of sisters when brothers had such nice pointers, Oscar replied. Slowly inching his fingers towards Fred Phelps's thighs. Oh, Oscar, you have such a devilish tongue. If you think it's devilish now, wait until it finds your beehole. <laughs> a little-known fact about Oscar Wilde was that no matter how eloquent he was in everyday life, his dirty talk only consisted of references to beeholes. <laughs> It thrilled Fred that he knew this. Come with me, Oscar said. He grabbed Fred's hand and led him May West, crossing the Joan Rivers through the Joan Crawford, and led him to the Natalie Woods. Less gay guys in this audience. It kills with the gay guys. They turned to face each other amidst the elms. 
And for a single instant, Fred stopped. He saw the trunks warp, turning into a mass of screaming people. They were shouting prayers, and the prayers turned to ash as soon as they left their lips. They were holding signs of great wickedness, and Fred could feel the hate radiate out of their tie-dyed Tweety Bird t-shirts. He was terrified. But as soon as they appeared, the shadows were gone. And all that was left was peace and love and Oscar, Fred's beautiful Oscar, his scarlet smoking jacket dappled in the forest light, his eyes mischievously shining as the birds sang Britney Spears' work bitch overhead. (laughs) So, Fred Phelps, Oscar said, how about Oscar Wilde gets Oscar Wilde on that beehole. <laughs> that was all it took. Fred Phelps and Oscar Wilde started fucking. Hard. The kind of fucking that you wish you did, but you know you don't. The, fi- the kind of fucking that gets so gross, it becomes beautiful again. Like what... Like watching a dog drink water in slow motion. (laughs) Fred's body was filled with a holy ecstasy he had never felt before. He did everything throughout their five-plus-hour non-stop fuck-fest. It was five-plus hours because there's no such thing as a refractory period in gay heaven. (laughs) Fred topped... Fred bottomed, but most importantly, Fred forgave. As Oscar Wilde ravaged his beehole like Santa Anna ravaged the Alamo. (laughs) Or Fred Phelps himself ravaged the funeral of a soldier. Fred Phelps forgave himself. He knew he did not deserve the forgiveness he had somehow found in this place, but he knew he would not squander it. This gay paradise had given him a kind of peace and serenity that he never could have achieved in the heterosexual citadel of hate he had built on earth. At that moment, Oscar Wilde came like a jackhammer in the back of his throat. As he did... All the Fred Phelps earthly ideologies melted away, along with the golden cum of Oscar Wilde. (laughs) God hates, what was it again? Tags? Flags? Whatever it was, Fred Phelps knew in his heart that it was wrong. Because God? God didn't hate anything. Not even Fred Phelps. Thanks. Everything's all right. I'm hooked on a feeling. I'm high on believing. Bless your in love. 
Before we close out our year stories for 2015, uh, I want to thank all of you for an amazing year. Definitely the show's best yet. We've been doing this for four years now, and there's no signs of stopping. Uh, thanks especially to everyone who listens and gives us feedback. If you want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes maybe too. That would be super, super cool. Uh, an extra special thanks go to everyone who spoke or sang or booked or did whatever this year. This show only works because dozens of people pour love into it every month. Shoutouts in particular to the aforementioned co-producer, booker, organizer, and wizard, Kevin Reeder, fellow musicians Dwight Hassler, Claire Friedman, and Jim Sinetiker, and the nerds who brought such incredible talent to our shows and these year-end episodes, uh, like Mary Beth Smith, Katie Johnson-Smith, and Claire Friedman. Again, uh, all of many of the people that you're hearing on these couple episodes at the year's end uh, were here by their request. Uh, also, Jesus, Claire, we get it. You're helpful. Okay? It's enough. Uh, the last song of this episode is, to me, a great illustration that crazy, amazing things can happen at your stories. In particular, an incredibly popular chiptune rock band performing an acoustic rendition of a hit Metallica song with guitar from the then-lead guitar player in Blackened, the U.S.'s premier Metallica cover band, and vocals from our own Dwight Hassler. It is an amazing combination of people, an incredible thing to happen, and I hope to see more things like it in 2016. Happy New Year, everybody. Sleep with one eye open. <laughs> Don't forget my son, you include everyone. 
it did Keep you free from sin Till the seventy comes Sleep with one eye open Gripping your pillow tight part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you like your stories, try Tight Pencils. Tight Pencils is a show that explores the process of making art. Matt and Kevin sit down with a maker, cartoonist, painter, or designer to find out about their work and what inspires them to create. For more info, go to tightpencils.com. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all, thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.